Greetings, everyone. The Torah portion is Noah. So there we go. It's a, a deluge again. Uh, so this class this year, we're looking at passages that we usually don't look at in the weekly portion. So just to get to the very beginning. So the Torah, the five books of Moses, are divided into weekly sections so that we begin last week with Genesis, and when we get around to the end of the year and the holidays again, we'll be in Deuteronomy and finishing and then starting over. So that's why, uh, so this week's portion is Noah. Now each week's portion is several chapters long because that's how you divide up the five books of Moses into 50, what amounts to 54 different sections. So Noah isn't just the story of Noah, it includes some other parts as well. And we've studied the Parsha together, as Jews do all over the world for centuries. We study the weekly Torah portion. And we thought this year, let's look at passages that we don't usually look at. Only because the story of Noah overtakes you know, the rest of this week's reading. So sometimes we'll be looking at passages that we don't look at too often. Sometimes we'll be looking at uh, passages we look at but that are disturbing that we want to really sink our teeth into, okay? So that's what we're doing this year. So um, the, uh, after the whole story of Noah, there's a couple of sections that are odd and interesting. Uh, not that the story of Noah isn't odd and interesting too, but uh, when Noah, um, Noah, it says, was the first person to plant a vineyard and then he promptly gets drunk. We're not going to look at that part today. Because the next chapter is the story of the Tower of ba- Babel, the Tower of Babel. And it's just nine verses long, and it's like a prose poem. It's so densely, uh, carefully worded with repetition and alliteration. And, and so I want us to do a close reading of the story of the Tower of Babel today. And... Um, I used as my main source, Bob Messing, who's not here today, gave me this book called Subversive, Se- Subversive Sequels in the Bible by Judy Klitzner, who teaches at Pardes in Jerusalem. I really recommend it. Uh, she's, she's very, very good. And she takes on the story of Babel, and I just immersed myself in her teaching, and I'll sort of be, we'll be spinning out from there. But also, it's our chance to do our own close reading and the way it works is we will weave our thoughts and comments in with the more traditional commentators, in with a close reading, and we'll see where we come out the other side with what insights and uh, ideas. So that's how, that's how it works. Um, so let's start. Turn to page. This is Genesis chapter 11, and it's on page 69. And I'm going to hand you Judy Klitzner's translation because, as usual, we'll compare it to our translations, but as usual, our translation, um, in its attempt, which I like very many many ways, in its attempt to be in a nice literary English idiom, often misses a lot of the repetition and alliteration in the Hebrew. And the Hebrew is intentionally repetitious and alliterative. 
in order, like, in order to um, communicate. A particular message. So, so we're going to look at these nine verses, and then we're also going to look at what comes right before them and what comes after them, because that informs analysis as well. Okay, so Noah comes out of the ark, and humanity restarts from the family of Noah. Everyone is a descendant of Noah and his wife who is unnamed in the text, right? And uh, there are three sons, Ham, Shem, and Yafet, and, wherever, and, uh, and their wives, who are unnamed. Um, chapter 10 is a whole chapter of names. Um, all the names of the progeny of Noah, and Noah's three sons. And... Uh, uh, then we get to chapter 11, which is not the bankruptcy chapter. Chapter 11. It comes before that. All right, so I'll read um, uh, from our uh, printed text, not from the uh, um, uh, handout, but you could follow by looking at the handout if you want. All the earth had the same language and the same words. Safa echat. So, so I'm going to go back. We're going to go back and forth between the two. All of the earth, kol ha'aretz, was of one language, safa echat, and of one set of words, dvarim achadim. And as they wandered from the east, they came upon a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, here, I'll read uh, Judy Klitschner's translation. Uh, Can I ask a question? Yeah. Who are they? Who are they? <laughs> I think it sounds like kol ha'aretz, all the earth, is referring to all of humanity. It seems that way. Um, so by the way, again, if you're not familiar with Torah study, this is what it is. Very close reading for the text. Like if you ever took a poetry class, and immersed yourself in a poem and, or a Shakespeare class and parsed every word and every meaning. That's what we do. Um, uh, so, come, let us make bricks. Hava nil bina levenim. Do you need the spot? It's 69. That's right, we're on page 69. Yes, she has an earlier edition. Oh, of the same book. <laughs> Same book, but an earlier edition with different pagination. Okay. Thank you. So then, the, then they said to one another, and they said, Come, let us make bricks. Hava nilbena levenim. And burn them hard. Venisrefa lisrefa. And the brick served them as stone, and bitumen served them as mortar. Vatehilahem halvena la'aven, v'hachemar hayalahem la'chomer. It's all wordplay in Hebrew. And they said, come, 
Hava, come. Hava means like, it's like Hava Nagila. It's uh, the same word. Hava Nagila means let's rejoice. Come rejoice. So, uh, come, let us build a city. Hava Nivnelanu Ir. And a tower, a Migdal. And it's t- with its top in the heavens. Virosho Bashamayim. And we will make for ourselves a name. We will make a name for ourselves. Pen nafutz al kol ha'aretz, lest we scatter over the face of all the earth. And Yudhe the Lord, the Eternal, descended to see the city and the tower that humanity had built. Vayered Adonai lerot et ha'ir ve'et ha'migdal asher banu b'nei ha'adam. Vayomer Adonai, and the Lord said, If, as one nation and one language, this is how they have begun to act, then nothing that they propose to do will be out of their reach. Come, let us descend. Hava nerda and confuse their language there. Hava nerda v'navla sham sfatam. It's like a tongue twister. Asher lo yishma'u ish sfat re'ehu. So that they will not understand each other's language. And the Lord scattered them from there over the face of kol ha'aretz. All the earth. Misham al-pnei kol ha'aretz. And they ceased building the city. Okay, now I'm on the next page. Um, uh, therefore, he called its name Shema Bavel, because there, Sham, the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Uh, uh, Balal is Hebrew. Yeah, Bavel and Balal. So, Bilbul, Balal, all means confusion in Hebrew. Uh, and from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of Alpne Kol Ha'art. End of story. Uh, uh, and that's why Babel, the greatest city in the ancient Near East, is called Babel, because it means Babel. So the, the, what we hear in English, that the, the Tower of Babel, when we think B-A-B-B-L-E, that's what you hear in Hebrew, too. Bilbul. So. It's like Babylon. Yeah, I'm saying that that the name Babel doesn't, which is Babylon, doesn't mean Babel, but the story says that's what the origin of the name is, because it's uh, people babbled at one another and didn't understand each other, because God confused all of their speech. So that's the story. Let's have our reactions before we dig into uh, uh, more stuff. What's your react? What 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 do you get from the story? What do you hear? Well, um, the part that struck me is they're going to get out of hand. They're going to uh, there's nothing. There's no end to it, which reminds me of our discussion last night in Spanish class because we were talking about. 
intelligence in computers and whether computers can become beings in a, in a kind of human sense and be out of control and, and not be stoppable. And I think I'm getting the same sense here. But like, I made these creatures, but I don't know what they're capable of. So let's do something. Let's, in, let's intervene. Let's put a check on this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. And? Well, it says that the reason that he made all the languages is uh, this is how they have begun to act. Then nothing that they propose to do will be out of their reach. That's his objection. Mm hmm. That's correct. That's what the story says. What's that all about? Good question. Oh, and Why you know what we've got are questions. We don't have, we, and then we propose answers. We read the text, we see what questions arise. The Torah is not a textbook. There's no, you can't look in the back for the answer. It's like, that's just not how it works. Other thoughts? Yes, Pauline. Uh, so I, I was doing some reading on this parsha and um, this new book, uh, Rabbi Yes, Held, Shai Held from Manhattan. I don't, you know, I hadn't known him very well, but I met him last January. So I got his, he has a new book on Torah Pasha. He has a two-volume Torah commentary, yeah. which I've sampled a lot of. It's really a really interesting one. And, you know, he talks about the fact that, that what the sin was, you know, and I always thought, oh, the Tower of Babel, because, you know, they were... They were trying to build something to the sky. And he talks about that the development of technology, the technology of building the bricks, that they wanted to build, they, they found a new technology, which is something what you were talking about. They found a new technology, and they decided they were going to build this big, big building. And some of the Midrashim say that they were building this big building because everybody was speaking the same language and the objection that God had was that he created humans for diversity of thought and opinion and words. And that the tower, there's a midrash that actually says that the tower was to make sure that people didn't leave the city because they wanted to keep one language and everybody thinking the same. So Rabbi Held says that it, this is the basis of a land of which we're becoming, a totalitarian land. Totalitarian, totalitarian one set of ideas, one, one language. language. Why, why would God send them out? When it when seems it, that the Torah's intention is to have us be scattered all over the earth. Yeah. Yes, what do you think, Barbara? Well, not, well, kind of in response, but also because I'm referring to this, it's called the Eitz Chaim. Oh yes, that's the conservative movement's yes. excellent edition of the Chumash, which I use all the time. But uh, they mentioned that the people were more concerned uh, when a brick fell right. than when a person fell. Right. Wow. Speaking of technology, go on, go on. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's So, one of the midrashim, which is typical, a midrash is a rabbinic interpretive story that expands on this nine verses, right? So, that there's not, you know, so we dig in and tell stories, is that they said the problem was that uh, the bricks uh, were more important than the people. Now, what's that an echo of? 
in the Torah? What is Egypt. 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 What I want you to know is that one of the things I've learned about the Torah is that the stories in Genesis, in the first book, all presage, isn't that how you say that word? Um, They all foretell sort of um, what's going to happen later to the children of Israel. And so there are distinct and intentional echoes linguistically between this and the first chapter of Exodus. And then the subsequent chapters when Pharaoh says, make more bricks and I'm not even giving you any straw. And the Midrashim about that are that even if a person or even a child accidentally got caught in the bitumen, in the mud pit, um, uh, it didn't matter. The brick making went on. And that there were parts of human beings. This is not in the text. This is in the stories about the text. There were parts of human beings in those buildings that the Israelites were forced to build. So, it's this, so there is a consistent idea in Torah uh, and why that Midrash that Barb mentioned is so important about structures being more important than people and that is not the intention of the Creator. Uh, the Exodus story is explicit about that. We don't even have to interpret it. It just tells us. More thoughts. Yes, Miriam. Who died while they were building the bridge? Mm-hmm. Or as part of the mythology of bridge building, perhaps. That's how we tell these stories of how these structures. The greatness of human edifices at what cost? Right. right? And that's like the story, again, the, Judaism is a, is a profoundly humanistic tradition from before there was an idea of humanism, right? That's a modern concept. But that story I love to read, that, I have, that we read every year, Ne'ilah, about Levi Yitzchak, up in heaven, I'll repeat it for people who don't, aren't familiar with it, it's the Day of Atonement, and Levi Yitzchak of Bedechev, the Hasidic master, is called up to heaven to argue that God should tilt the scales of justice and forgive humanity. And this, like this, this reflects our conversation last week about the debates in heaven about whether human beings deserve to exist here or not, based on our behavior. Uh, and uh, Levi Yitzchak said, if you wanted us to be perfect, you shouldn't have given us bodies with lusts and appetites, and we're doing the best we can, God. So give us a break. And it says in the story that God was, God was um, uh, persuaded by um, Levi Yitzchak's argument, and the, tales, the, the, the scales of justice began to tilt towards forgiveness. And then it says Levi Yitzchak heard a shriek from down below, and he looked down from heaven into his little synagogue, and there Chaim, the washerman, had uh, collapsed and fainted from hunger, because Levi Yitzchak had been up there so long, and Yom Kippur was, it was already dark, and, and so Levi Yitzchak sees down there, gets up, and leaves. And the angels call out of him, Levi Yitzchak, you were about to save the world. Don't go. And Levi Yitzchak says, and who says that the price of saving the world is the life of Chaim the washerman? 
and he left. And the angels called after him, Levi Yitzchak, you are saving the world. That is a classic Jewish story. It's beautiful, isn't it? Um, that uh, we can hear even the origins of in uh, our Torah. Um, Rob? Um, one, I was struck in, that, in the story about this, uh, I guess it's a metaphor for diversity, and yet I'm also struck by the continual fighting in Judaism about <laughs> diversity. And I'm just wondering how that this story is used or not used uh, for one one position or the other. I don't know exactly, but the the uh, the commentaries I was reading all are arguing, and they're all modern commentaries, but they're not all. There, some of them are, or, are modern Orthodox commentaries. Are all arguing for the primacy of the individual uh, in terms of uh, the value of human life. Um, and that is consistent, but not an, I haven't read widely enough to, 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 to say. This, is, this, this, tower of, this tower story is used in many, many ways. Is it a story about a semi-nomadic um, shepherding people and how they feel about city, cities, big cities. It's probably about that too. You know, there's, this is also an ancient, ancient tale of origins. Is it mocking Babylon? Is it sarcasm? Is it irony? You know, there's so many different levels. None of them necessarily negate the other. That's the point of a good story, is it doesn't have a single correct interpretation. Um, and, and I just want us to keep that in mind as we read on. Yeah. One of the um, interesting things is that um, you indicated that right before it, we have a whole, a whole page of names, the right. names of the progeny. And afterwards, we have then the ongoing story of the, um, of the names, mm -hmm. and that the city was named Names. And they were building the tower to make a name for themselves. And so then the question to ask is, what is the value of what your objective is, what you're trying to do? And because like, you know, technology in itself could be a great thing, but what are you using it for? And is that the ultimate value? If their ultimate value is that everybody speak the same language, and have, you know, and they make a name for themselves because where I think of that book and the movie, what was it, Failsafe for the 1984 or whatever, you know, you see everybody having to have the same thoughts and the thought... Uh, we're talking about sound. 1984, aren't 1984, we? 1984, mm -hmm. I think. Yes. You know, not, we, you have to have the same thoughts, like, and how scary is it? And we see ourselves in our own country with one group having a very particular mode of thinking and response and answers for everything and another mode and how close what what's like what's the energy pushing us to it's scary oh I, uh, I I just want to say something I um, was um, parked in in town and the car next to me had a bumper sticker that said I could be wrong oh, mm -hmm. that's Eve, that's Eve. Yeah, who is Eve oh. huh Long I know somebody else who has that too. Right. So oh, I said, yeah, uh, yeah, no, this yeah, is no, somebody else. Oh, somebody else. Yeah. So I said, where'd you get that? She mm -hmm. said, I made it. Mm 
Uh, so she said, go online. So I went online and I made another one. Oh, cool. I ordered 20 of them. Wow, very good. So I'll have them soon. Great. They're magnetic bumper stickers and all they Great. say is, I could be wrong. Wonderful. I just loved it. I and, loved it. And that speaks to what Anne was saying. Uh, yeah, like, you, it can be like a backhanded gift. Uh, right. <laughs> So, so the trigger being <laughs> that that um, nothing will be out of their reach, and that somehow that's not a good thing. Somehow that's and, not a good thing. And so it seems to me part of it is a call to be humble, mm -hmm. and I to realize that it's if you have that puffed up thing that nothing's out of my reach, maybe that's not a good thing. Uh, that's right. Maybe that's not a good thing. Humanity has now cracked the DNA code. We are on our way towards creating life. That's going to happen sooner or later. The, 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 the news stories about the latest emerging science are astonishing. There's a lot of cautionary tales about this. So, and this is a thrust of the Torah. We are um, made in the image of God and therefore endowed with these amazing capabilities, but we are not the creator. And so what happens in the Garden of Eden? They eat from the tree of knowledge of good and bad, and their eyes are opened, and God says, uh, we have to kick them out because lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever, right? So this is a continuing theme in the Torah. I would say that chapter one of Genesis is certainly about this because God says, creates the human beings and says, now be fruitful and multiply and cover the, fill the earth and you shall rule over all the creatures and you shall your do, you shall dominate them and keep shoe, um, uh, master them, right? And if we just stop there and it was evening and it was morning the sixth day, then we miss the next instruction, which is, and on the seventh day, Pause and make sure you do not lord over creation. But you allow, and so the seventh day in Judaism, Shabbat, the idea is it's the corrective against hubris. That's the whole idea of the seven day cycle. Um, and this, that, that's going to repeat over and over. Uh, Karen, what did you want to share? I was sort of very similar to all of that. This is Deborah, by the way, if you haven't met Karen. Oh, yeah. We sat together in service. Oh, good. Because um, also, you know, it's sort of interesting. So it's, you know, the, 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 it's the sections in between, you know, the section of here's Noah's son, uh, Shem, which is also Shem, which is Nathan. Okay. Noah's son, Shem, from which the word Semite derives, by the way, uh, is uh, the, the, the progenitor of Israel, among the many other children. So Abraham descends from Shem. And interestingly, Shem means name. So this is not accidental because names in the Torah are never accidental. I guarantee you. Go on. Yeah, so, so we have this progenitor whose name is name. Right. And I had never read this about how the purpose of the tower was to create a name, a name for ourselves. Mm -hmm. That that was the purpose. That was the purpose. And now, of course, in modern times, one of the most 
popular name for God is Hashem, the name. And so, yeah, so going back to this confusion, that we need to be clear where the boundary is, where mm -hmm. our realm is, and, and what it is that we then give, um, you know, give over to the Creator. And, and that maybe it's not a bad thing when we're humbled. No, it's important. Yeah. And uh, uh, in the biblical um, uh, metaphors, the, the earth is ours to spread over and to, and the shamayim, which, has, which is heavens, which has the word shem in it, uh, is God's realm. And they want to build a tower uh, uh, that reaches the shamayim. Right? So, yes, this, that, that's a lot of, that is all going on here. And the fact that Shem means name, Sham means there, Shamayim is heavens. Um, uh, this, so, the point that we're making is what Judy Klitzner really, really digs deep into in her, in her treatment of this. That, yes, indeed, as Pauline said, the entire chapter before this nine verses, is, a, is about names, people's names. Then the verses right afterwards, till the end of the chapter on page 71, are names. So this nine verses, in the midst of two chapters of names, says, let us make a name for ourselves. And she points out that no one in these nine verses has a name. That's the poetic structure here. That whereas when I was younger, I would say, names, 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 names. Oh, good, a story. What is, this, <laughs> what is this story about? And then like, oh, more names. Okay, let's get on to the next story, right? But that's not how the Torah is constructed. It's all consciously and intentionally put together. This was the work of a scribal culture that cared about every single detail. I mean, one of the reasons why it has such saying power is this intricate structure, which we in our hubris might just write off as, oh, this is the boring part. But that wasn't the intention. And is that scribal tradition has its origins in Babylon, perhaps? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it does. Yes. I am pretty that, sure it does. That's why they needed to be scattered. So, Let's now reflect on what we might glean from that. Nine verses where people, the people who are one people of one tongue say, let us make a name for ourselves by building a tower that reaches the heavens, um, surrounded by uh, 31 verses of, uh, um, 32 verses of names before, and another 21 verses of names after, and with this. So think of that as a kind of a picture. Oh, picture. Think of that pictorially. And what do you, what do you think? Could I ask you a question about yeah. the root here, Bet Nun Hay? Is that from Bina? Is it no. the same root? Bet Nun Hay is, is to build. build. But, but Bet, Bina is from Bet, bet Vav Nun. Bet Vav Nun. Which means to comprehend or right. to understand. So, so it makes close, sense that yeah. Bet Nun, to construct and to understand yeah. or to 
one being a cognitive function, the other being a physical one, right. are related Hebrew yeah. roots. They're not the same root, root but they're related. But they're very yeah. much related. Um, so Judy Klitzner points out her, that um, in these chapters of names, we are getting from Noah to Abraham. And as the tradition has noticed for millennium, um, there are 10 generations between Noah and Abraham. Very significant because there are also 10 generations between Abraham, uh, between Adam and Noah. So 10, just, po just to point that out. So in the midst of these generations, uh, um, the, um, we have this part about uh, the Tower of Babel. And then if you look at the page 70, verse 9, Judy Klitzner points out that the, name, that the word Shem, which means name, or the word Sham, which means there, and remember, the Torah doesn't have vowels in it. So you would see seven, it occurs seven times in those nine verses. That's the late motif. That's how Torah works. The word most repeated in a section is the word that is the through line and what you're supposed to be hearing in that passage. And so one of the problems we have with English translation, as I've explained before, is that the English translators, not being aware of this literary um, form, find that to be plotting in English. And so they spice it up. They use synonyms. They use, and so we, reading the English, you will never get it. <coughs> unless, huh? What is the word? In this case, Shem, name. Or sham, which means there. Shem or sham don't have vowels in the Torah text. They are the same letters. So when you read this in the Torah scroll, you see those words seven times. And then look what happens in verse 10. Ele toldot shem. Shem ben ma'ashana. This is the line of shem. And that's his name, but it also means name, right? So Shem was 100 years old. And the repetition of Shem twice there, again, whenever words are repeated in Torah, it's as though they are in bold or italic in English, right? It's emphatic. It says doubling of words is the biblical Hebrew way of wanting them to jump off the page at you. Does that make sense? Okay, so uh, like, um, I think it's just so interesting that, um, that they're playing with this sound. Um, and so, um, the question is, what does it mean to have a name? And what does it mean to make a name for yourself? Right, and uh, so I'm thinking of you know, the kind of the cartoonish uh, ability of Donald Trump to embody uh, all, of the, all of the negative qualities of hubris, right? He puts his name on the highest towers he can 
all over the world, right? You almost don't need to say anything more than that to get the Torah's point here. Um, is God, so that's the point. <laughs> Pharaoh uh, is all those monuments are to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, and by the way, Pharaoh, she points out, is not a proper name. It means the ruler. So even Pharaoh doesn't have a name wow. per se. Um, so I think, I think we should look at the, first, at the beginning of Exodus to see the comparison here. Oh, yes, the name Ken. of the book of Exodus in Hebrew is... Right. The name of the book of Exodus is Shmot. Look at page 346. Are you there? 346. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Elesh Mot Bnei Yisrael. These are the names of the sons of Israel. So I cannot emphasize enough that while the Greeks named in the Greek translation, new names were given to these books. And this book was named, appropriately, the book of Exodus. But that's not its Hebrew name. Its Hebrew name is Sefer Shmot, which means the book of names. Now that name is derived, the names of the books in Hebrew are always derived from the first significant word in the first verse of the book. That's the ancient naming tradition of the Jews. And ve'ela just means these. Shmot is the first significant word. So again, in our hubris, we might assume, or arrogance, we might assume, um, well, that's a stupid name for a book. But I guess that was their <laughs> habit of how they did it. Right? That's not correct. <laughs> uh, more accurate is that they started their books with the word that they wanted to be the name of the book, right? Uh, and huh. so um, the Hebrew name, uh, well, let's not go on that whole um, excursion, uh, but it's fascinating when you start looking at them that way. Uh, then they become a theme for the book that you hadn't thought of before because we're so used to referring to the books by their Greek and now English names, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. But their Hebrew names are Breshit, Shmot, Vayikra. They have different names that have nothing to do, um, or, or only accidentally if they do, like Breshit means in the beginning, and Genesis, you know, so those two have some link, but most of them don't. Um, so it starts with, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. And they all get named in the first six verses. So it starts with names. And then, as we've discussed in class over the years, um, Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the Israelites, and the Israelites, Paru, were fertile, vayishretsu, prolific. Sheretz means to swarm. 
And the last time we've heard that word is in the creation story in Genesis, in chapter 1, where God creates all the swarming creatures, which are considered to be an abomination. They're the stuff we can't eat. They're the teeming sort of swarming creatures. Uh, and so the Israelites are immediately uh, compared to swarming creatures. And they multiplied and increased very greatly, and the land was filled with them. Yes, they are the food for the higher animals. So, in a sense, um, that's how Pharaoh treated them, as food for him. Exactly. Right. Pharaoh doesn't give them names. The slaves don't have names. They are reduced to the swarm that's that in the food chain. Exactly. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, Hinei am b'nei Yisrael, the children of Israel, rav v'atzum mimenu, are much too numerous, for, 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 uh, or are more numerous than us. Um, you know, I'm reading a, uh, the new history of the United States by Jill Lepore. Um, in the Caribbean islands, um, the African slave population out, outnumbered the, um, the pl plantation owners, the sugar plantation owners, by eight, eight to one. And they were constantly rebelling. Duh. You know, uh, whereas the slave rebellions weren't as bad in the States because of the population. Uh, anyway, I'm, I wanted to read this history. Um, let us deal shrewdly with them. And now look at the Hebrew in verse 10. Hava nikakma lo. Hava is exactly the word used over and over in the Tower of Babel story. Not a common usage. Come, let us. What does it say in the Tower of Babel story? The people say, come, let us make bricks and fire them hard. And then they said, come. Let us build a city with a tower that reaches the sky. And then God says, comes down and looks and says, uh, in verse 7, Hava, let us go down and confuse their speech. Uh, so, that's, so we don't hear that. Now again, we could go in the whole other direction of saying to, who is God talking to again? Right? We talked about that last week. What is this let us, let's go down? But... Um, clearly, in the, there's a heavenly realm with heavenly beings who, who are in God's court, and then there's us down here, and the, those realms should not be breached. Um, so now back in Exodus, it says, Hava nitchakmalo, pen, lest. So that's the same language. God says in verse 7, let us, get down, let us go down. Uh, oh, no, no, the people say... Um, uh, let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and make ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of all the earth. And now Pharaoh is saying, Hava, let us deal shrewdly with them uh, so that they may not increase. Otherwise, in the event of war, they might join our enemies 
and rise up min ha'aretz from the land against us. I don't know, this is really interesting to me because I want to point out that this language recurs here and here. But this, but these phrases are in, Judy Klitzner is very persuasive. Oh boy. Oh, it's the flood coming. Um, that that the, the, the words about names, let us, lest, all of that is related. So Pharaoh and the Tower of Babel story are related in terms of the kinds of languages that get echoed in each Doesn't of them. Doesn't it also say of Joseph at some point that he knew their language, he knew their names? He knew their language. Their language. So he knew their language. Yes. Um, he knew their language, and that that became why he was able to um, not be, you know, killed or anything. He knew their language. He was able to talk to the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. Um, so <coughs> they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built garrison cities for Pharaoh, Pitom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they increased and spread out, so that the Egyptians came to dread Yakutsu. Yakutsu means dread, but it's also how we're instructed in the laws of Kashrut, the foods that we are not to eat, the swarming foods, they should be in a they should repel us. Yakuts means repulsion. Um, it's very interesting. From like, what, what's the root? I'm not sure. Oh. Um, I'm not sure what it means. It's interesting. Uh, kotzim in Hebrew are thorns. I don't know if it's related. Hmm. Anyway, um, so now um, they dreaded the Israelites. They were, the, here's this swarming mass. So when it says a new king arose who did not know Joseph, Names are forgotten. How could you not know Joseph? Think about it for a minute. And is this, how could a new king not know who Joseph was? Joseph was the hero of Egypt, right? He saved the empire from famine. He made Pharaoh the most powerful ruler in the earth, right? By, by, because during the seven years of famine, people became indentured to Pharaoh and his, his land holdings, everything increased, right? A new king arose who did not know Joseph. What does that mean? You know, it could mean, well, Pharaoh and Joseph were tight, and then the new king did a house cleaning and brought in a new administration, right? <laughs> that's, that's, exactly. but the well, What theme, does it mean not to the, have a name, not to, to not, not be to, known and not have a name? None and of the, is it yeah. we know when we have a name or, what happens when we don't have a name? I used to work with um, babies that were born in NICUs um, that had to be there before they could be taken home. And some of them got to be home and some didn't. And it was often the parents' desire not to name the child until they brought her or him home. And you think about that. like. What, what does that signify? And I know that in our tradition, like I was given an, 
extra name at one point during a Shavuot retreat with Reb Zalman. And I know people change their names. And there's a tradition that if you come out of a sickness, or it used to be part of a superstition, but I'm not sure where those lines blur of taking on a new name um, and what that means. Thank you. What I I was going to say is that um, we know that the totalitarian impulse is to create nameless masses. Right? Mm-hmm. And we know the worst example of that was the Nazis reducing concentration camp and made it to numbers. Right? Wiping out their identity, putting them in slave labor camps where they were entirely interchangeable and entirely expendable. And where the language of totalitarians about the, um, again, we are all experiencing it in our country right now when you talk about gangs of uh, murderous illegal immigrants wandering the country as though they're some, you know, that's, uh, they, you know, it's, a, it's right, out of, right out of Pharaoh's textbook. He sits down with his visors and says, there's this swarming mass of foreigners amongst us. And you know what we need to do? We need to enslave them. Um, and there's no evidence that the Israelites were a swarming mass of uh, you, you understand, this is the biggest empire on the planet at the time. So all of this human experience wasn't invented in the 20th century. It's been around since the beginning of humanity. And there's a story about people wanting to make a name for themselves mm-hmm. with a tower reaching to heaven mm-hmm. that clearly the Torah wants to ridicule and make clear that it's not what the Creator intends. Um, it says, oh yes, Myra. I'm, I'm fixated on this language. And, Fascinating, um, yeah. Um, maybe I, I misinterpret it, but if they wanted everybody to speak the same language, which maybe was Hebrew, I guess, at the time. Well, that's what the commentaries say. It must have been Hebrew, but... You know, it's okay. a story. Whatever, whatever language it was, it was a language. What was the language that Noah spoke? Like, I don't know. This is a, these are these are pre these are proto history. This is not. But the pharaohs didn't speak the same language, which is what I'm assuming from reading this. So you couldn't really know somebody if you don't know his language and don't understand what he's saying. Also true. So I'm just. You know, I'm trying to make this meaning in reference to a name. Like, you could mm-hmm. be called Joseph, but if I don't know what you're saying and what you're doing, I don't know you. Um, right, so you know? wouldn't it be advantageous in the Tower of Babel that everybody spoke the same language? Well, if you speak the same language, language is based on thought. So if you're all speaking the same language, and, you, and, and, and the development of language, which I know well, also, like, it puts value, value judgments and statements about the environment and interaction that you're involved. So if a language has a certain word that everybody learns is bad, like those swarms of um, illegal immigrants, and right away all you need is then that word that everybody has the same, and it 
already ignites so the control. thought. It's a form yeah. of right. thought control. So that's how it begins. So what we have here is a conundrum. Because of all the multiple languages, we have a real challenge in communicating. But this story says, posits that the creator thinks that's a good thing. Because this story starts with, and all the earth had the same language and the same words. So, again, the bigger, the bigger um, uh, reflection on, the, on the, the complication of the multiplicity of human languages is that's a problem. We have to learn to speak the same language. So that's a whole other metaphorical uh, positive thrust. But it appears that the thrust of the Torah is ironic and negative, that something about this one language and one set of words is, is a totalitarian impulse, not a, um, not a um, uh, diversity, impulse of diversity. Right. And, and yet, God's creating additional problems by creating many different languages. So, right, but... But it seems like by this story starting, saying all the earth had the same language and the same words is a negative. Interp- is, is heading towards somewhere negative. It appears that way. Rob? What's the Hebrew for saying in that? Uh, really interesting. Echad, which means one, and Dvarim Achadim, one set of words. So, Echad, Echad. Interesting. And then that gets repeated later. You should be confused. Well, it's a confusing well, story. Going back to Noah, um, and after they talk about each son, they say, spread out each with his own tongue, right. or as they go on, uh, their tongues, tongue. So Barb has picked out a real problem that happens all the time in the Torah. Look at verse 31 on page 68. And so, these are Shem's sons by their clans, their tongues, in their lands, and their nations. And then look at verse 20, right up above there. And these are Ham's sons by their clans, their tongues, in their lands, and their nations. So there's some like glaring contradiction here between what just came and this story. And the only way I can do that when I'm reading Torah is that the framers of the Torah didn't care. They weren't trying to write a consistent narrative as we understand it. Their stories are there to make points. To, and so for them it's like, um, in this story, look how everyone has a name and everyone has a tongue. But now in this story, look how they don't. It's not that it all has to be internally consistent the way we would hope it would in a in a, in, a, in a continuous narrative the way we would expect it to. That's my only way of, because this happens all the time. When you read the story of Noah previously, it contradicts itself internally yeah. over and over again. It's like, okay, so they must not have been concerned with the kind of narrative consistency we want to have uh, when they were doing the story. They must have had a different sort of thrust or intention in their storytelling. Or they could have had a, a gap. They didn't work on it for a year or a few years. Or well, Maybe, but I, I think that so. underestimates the amount of care that went into this text. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so I have to assume that it was not unintentional and that they had different priorities in terms of storytelling. So like if we were reading a book of just so stories, we don't need one story to match up entirely with the next one because we're here enough. You know, it's a different relationship to stories. You know, and we, um, we want it to be historical and therefore we want a narrative that coheres from one chapter to the next. But that, the Torah is not a history. So history. they're recording the names of the, that's why they're putting all the names down. The record, the record keeping. Whoa. Whoa. Wow. Whoa. No, I don't think, I, that, was, that was some comment on your <laughs> I don't know, Noah's speaking. <laughs> I don't know what Noah's saying. Um, the pages and pages of begats, right. names, uh, which are a mystery to so many of us, contribute to the overall structure and thrust of the book. So as I pointed out, a whole genealogy of names on one side of the story of the Tower of Babel, where they say, let's make a name for ourselves, and on the other side, seem to be a dramatic structure to have the what to have the differences between these two and this story in the middle jump out of this. That seems to be one of the, it seems to be a literary structure. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, I have to see if this is important. No, okay. No, no, no. It's just if it's one of my kids. Yeah. So, about the main thing again. So, it seems to me that there is a sort of paradoxical consistency. So, on the one hand, we're talking about Trump Towers and what happens when you get like so grandiose with your name and how damaging that is. And then on the other hand, you have, if, if there is no name, and you talk about the Holocaust, I think about the uh, Woody Guthrie song, Deportee. Deportee. Deportee, where it's like all they will call them will be Deportee. And all they will call you will be Deportee. It's Woody Guthrie's song from the 30s about illegal immigrants. Or even there's a few wonderful songs about the AIDS quilt and the power of saying those names. Or the... Vietnam Memorial, where you, where you can actually touch, touch a name, the name uh, to make it real. So I don't know. It feels to me like both things are true. Like there's some quality of having a name that humanizes you, and then some quality of making a name for yourself and making it so big that you lo you lose your humanity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So I, I yes. I, I agree. I think that um, there's those that make a name for themselves and their name is big like Trump and all that. Um, as opposed to m remembering someone like with an AIDS quilt. Uh, because then I go back to thinking about when we give Tzedakah. So I think, I forget which level it is. It's like, you know, like the greatest level is to be anonymous. Not the greatest, but one of the higher one levels of Tzedakah is to give it anonymously because it's not about you. Right. So you want to have a name and transcend it. Um, okay. Yeah. See, these are the kind. These are precisely the kinds of thoughts that I hope emerge from studying Torah. Right. Not the answer, 
right? I'm not interested in the answer. I'm interested in what gets stimulated for us that we then walk out into our lives with. That's the purpose of studying Torah for me. So thank you. Uh, did someone else have a hand up? Yes, Miriam. I was very curious because I grew up in um, Oregon where a lot of migrants. A lot of migrants in Oregon. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting because um, you know the housing for them was very horrible. And we would go out with the, um, like, so with the Quakers and clean them up and get to know people. Oh. And all of a sudden they weren't so, but yet over the years, these basically were our, our country slaves. Yes. And as soon as they started making a name for themselves, it became threatening. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I'm thinking of mm. um, uh, the, um, the new Colossus uh, at, uh, by Emma Lazarus at the base of the Statue of Liberty. I'm just thinking, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Teeming. Uh, you know, all those words for swarming. Uh, it's fascinating just to think of it in those terms. It's, it's, no wonder it's a keeper of a poem. It has all these ancient uh, kind of sounds became, to it. became dehumanized, really. Mm-hmm. The, um, and then I'm thinking of that uh, TV show, Cheers, where their theme song was, it's about a bar, remember, in Boston, mm-hmm. where everybody knows your name. That was the tagline. And uh, what that means when we hear that, a place where everybody knows your name. Uh, the city... Maybe part of this is a critique of the big city where people don't know your name. Maybe, uh, um, maybe that's part of the critique of what they saw going on uh, in the ancient Near East and in the effort of, you know, I don't know, all those thoughts come to my mind. Yes? Just a memory that this brings up for me when the Europeans came and took all the best land from the Indians and eventually put them on reservations. Right, which are concentration camps of a kind, yes. Yeah, and my mailbox is full of pleas for money for the Native Americans mm-hmm. uh, to help educate them, to feed them, etc. You know, um, I'm wondering yeah. if, um, you know, relating this back to um, the beginning of Genesis, where God gives men the ability to name all the Yes, animals. very much so. So and, so, and I'm wondering that... The power if, to name. And, and they weren't doing that. That was one of the things that God had, had human beings. You're here, and this is one of your tasks, to name each other. And so if you take it beyond the creatures to name each other, if everybody only has a number. And so maybe God was scattering them so that they would have to begin to learn each other's names and come to know each other. And I think about in everyday ah, life, I like as we go through life, I'm often in doctor's offices and You're an hospitals. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and the people You're that home away from home. Right, Sorry. And, and in today's world, with this building of bricks, 
not using the stone that's available, but this new uh, artificial brick that people only have like a very specific kind of one cell job that to put your name and address in, right? And then somebody else somewhere else does something else and someone else. And, and you go and you often have to wait and everybody becomes nameless. You're nameless to the receptionist who has a lousy job and is tired of doing the same thing and gets paid barely anything and maybe has two or three jobs. And then you sit around a waiting room and unless you're somebody like me who talks to everybody, you become nameless. You're sitting among nameless. And so, you know, I, you know people that know me, I, I go and I talk to people and I try to connect with them. And I really think that, th that that's, you know, there's a saying that God is found in the in-between. And if there's not a name, if there's not that desire to go and connect. To know and, that person. And, and say, yes, you're a human being. You are in the image of God. That's the first step. And if you don't do that, that no matter what language you speak, where would you be? Thank you. Uh, um, I'll call you in a second. The power of naming in the Torah is primary and central, which is why I think Judy Klitscher's on the right track in, what, what, in this phrase, let us make a name for ourselves. Because in Genesis chapter 1, God names everything. God called the day, light day, called... So God named, and then God creates the human being and puts Adam in the garden, and then brings all the, creates the animals, and brings all the animals in front of Adam, and Adam gave each one a name. So, the, so something about the capacity to name is part of our, our this divine imprint that, that we possess. So, and also, therefore, that's why names in the Torah are not accidents, because names are very potent and powerful. So, Susan. Brought back in my thoughts about a workshop I took, and we broke up into groups, and one person went in the center, and they were asked their name or a name, a, a favorite name, or a, a, and then the rest of us just chanted that name to them. I've played that name yes. game. Yeah, yeah. I've done and that. I read doing it, and it was yeah. so powerful. I did it with Jeff once. Just to hear your name repeated and hear mm -hmm. the echo, and so it just brought back the powerful. Of our Isn't that something? It's Thank you for remembering that. I think I want to I point out a couple more things uh, that continue this thread. Back in Exodus, um, uh, let's see, I'm on page 347 now. If you kept your finger there, I don't know. I hope you did. <laughs> They're in order, right? Yeah, the numbers are in order, so keep going up or down. 347. So remember, so n now names have been erased. Right? The last name we heard was Joseph. I'm in verse 13 now, on page 347. That's chapter 1, verse 13. The Egyptians ruthlessly imposed upon the Israelites the various labors that they made them perform. Ruthlessly, they made life bitter for them. Bachomer uvelivenim. Okay, those are the same words which means bricks and mortar, that are used in the um, Babel story. Um, 
and with all sorts of tasks in the field. So again, this, this, this idea of building edifices is, is, un, is understood by the Torah to be a dehumanizing process where the builders are, are doing it without volition, right? Not, it's not, you know, they don't get to scratch their name in the brick. They don't. And uh, uh, then verse 15, the king of Egypt, still nameless, spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, Shem Ha'achat Shifra, Shem Hashenit Pua. There they have names, Shifra and Pua. They are the first individuals named in this story of oppression. It's not too far a stretch to, 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 for, each, for us to sort of say why. Why do they merit names? And, do the names mean anything? Well, the names, interestingly, Shifra, no one knows what these names mean exactly. Shifra and Shefer means beautiful. Pua, we don't know exactly what it means, so the Midrash says uh, it's the sound a woman makes uh, in labor breathing. Um, you know, the <laughs> it's a nice story, but nobody knows. But Judy Klitzner pointed out something I never noticed before, which is Pharaoh, Paro, who does not have a name in this story. Shifra and Pua, their names make up, have Peresh and Ayin He are in their names. So the name of Pharaoh is embedded in their names. I don't know what to make of that, but it was a beautiful thing she noticed. noticed. Possibility of transformation. I don't know. So I can't answer the question about these names. Um, Other than that, they get named. And they then, as we've talked about so much over the years, engage in one of the most um, uh, gutsy risky, you know, uh, efforts to save um, uh, the, the Hebrew boy babies um, uh, by basically doing it, they're subversive, you know, they, they, they don't have the power to defy Pharaoh, so they just do it. And then as you know, uh, or as you may not know, uh, um, it, well, let's read on. If it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. Again, one of the ironies of this story and of Pharaoh and of how power makes you stupid <laughs> because you forget that human beings are powerful is that it's the girls who then completely undermine Pharaoh's reign. It begins with the midwives, as we know, and then it's Miriam and Miriam's mother, and then, of all things, Bat Paro, the daughter of Pharaoh, who saves Moses, and which is going to lead to Pharaoh's downfall. So I don't think it's a stretch. Hmm. To say that Pharaoh's um, Pharaoh's totalitarianism, Pharaoh's uh, leads him not just to under, under, underestimate all human beings, but specifically girls. Um, and uh, the midwives, and then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, "Why have you done this thing, letting the boys live?" The midwives said to Pharaoh, "Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women." Now, this is where our translation fails us completely. It says, they are vigorous. Now, some of you already know what it says in Hebrew. Can you find it in verse 19? 
Right. Ki chayot. You know what a vildachaya is? Yeah. They're animals. We can't they have con- names, maybe. What? They have names that Adam gave them. Uh, on the contrary. <laughs> on the contrary. They are subhuman. It's not a very good translation if you're calling them. Vigorous? Yeah, go, go talk to the committee that did this book. You know, I like some of what they did, but I, don't, I think other things are like, like clueless. Ki chayotem, they're animals. That's what it says in Hebrew. Uh, before we can even get to them, they've given birth. And of course, as we've discussed, Pharaoh believes them. They know how to speak his language. Those, they're animals. You know, that's not going to work. And Pharaoh says, yeah, they are animals. Because they don't have names. They're not human beings. They're not individuals. And the purpose of the Torah is to give the idea that every human being is created in the divine imprint. Every single one. You cannot reduce them to swarming masses or you are defying the divine plan. That's why I say Judaism is a profoundly humanistic in its core um, tradition, uh, teaching. That's what we are. That's what we stand for. I don't know, for some reason, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but it just, just kind of like came over me like a wave. And <laughs> as I was reading about pharaohs seeing them as subhuman, I thought of Hitler. You should. You should. Hitler is an archetypal tyrant just like Pharaoh. Tyrants function by taking people's volition and identity away. And that's why translating the first line of the um, Tower of Babel story as they were one uh, language and uh, and one set of thoughts or words is precisely understood that way. That's the sin. We hear so much about, um, like, if something is written and it's anonymous, you know, and our dictator says to us, uh, it's anonymous, it has no volition, it doesn't count. So what does it mean to be anonymous, like, to be invalidated in any way? Wow. Yes, Sarah. Yes. Oh, that means that the second aliyah starts here. Mm. If you're doing a full read, this, this chumash, just like the one that uh, Barb brought, it was created for synagogue use. Okay. So it, it, if you are doing traditionally the full kriya, which means during the Torah service you're reading the entire portion, which happens in more traditional synagogues, then that number tells you when the first section ends and where the second aliyah begins. Yes? That the girls live, in so many cultures, the girls become concubines. But yet they, so many times, they gather together, and they begin, as in the story, become a strong force. But yet the opinion of the <coughs> male ruler is that girls are our service. Right. Gr- the, the girls, as concubines, are once again people being used in a functional way that denies them their individual self, you know, um, any kind of subjugation. Uh, yes? So there's a, we're talking about 
a lot about names here, and then just strikes me that you know God is either either has lots of names or is nameless, depending upon how you look at it. I'm just wondering what the rabbis sort of say about that. Isn't that beautiful? This gets us yes. to the ultimate paradox, which is that we can't name God. Um, uh, that we have the power to name, but there's a realm beyond which, oh, which we do not control and have no, you know, it's the, it's the, that's the idea. It's that there's a realm that's nameless beyond our capacity or ability or right to try to pigeonhole. Um, and there's an idea of trying to emulate God like, without boundaries, because they use the word echat here, and that reminds me the unity, echad, one language, one unity. What's the unity that we believe can exist? Um, can we do that? Can we create one unity, but then we're like create. the creator? No. The one unity is it's not. not right, exactly. It's ours to so participate in. Yes. Yeah. So that's what they were trying that's why, I, you know, he said, why and was yes, God so And so in, I'm going back to the Tower of Babel story now. Why was God so angry? So, yeah, because is God just mad that humans are trying to invade God's realm? Well, on a folktale, you know, way, sure. But there's a much deeper teaching going on here, why this is inserted right here in the Torah uh, uh, and what this story is doing here. So um, there's a lot of... Um, Irony and sarcasm in the way language gets used in our story. I'm back on, I'm back on uh, chapter 11 here on page 69. Um, sort of culminating on page 70, in, and that's why the place is called Babel. Right? Uh, biggest city in the world the place where Abraham is going to come from, that land. And that's what is uh, in the eyes of, is, is ridiculed, sarcastically ridiculed for their efforts to consolidate power in one place. And so Isaiah, this is a typical passage in Isaiah that Judy Klitzner pointed out. Um, Isaiah is preaching... You shall recite this song of scorn over the king of Babylon. Um, and it's a song of scorn, and then it says, uh, um, Once you thought in your heart, I will climb to the sky. Higher than the stars of God, I will set my throne. I will sit in the mount of assembly on the summit and I will mount the back of a cloud, and I will edameh le'elyon. I will be exactly like God. Isaiah chapter 14. I never saw this verse before. Or if I'd read it before. The whole chapter is, is um, it says, uh, you, you shall recite hamashal hazeh al-melech bavel, on the king of Babylon. It is entirely possible that Isaiah was composing his speeches at the same time that this story was, you know, extant and known by everybody. Uh, so the image of rising up to heaven to be like God 
which is what kings think is their divine right. So remember, so many cultures uh, from ancient history till the present uh, uh, believed in what was called the divine right of kings, that the, the king is God's representative on earth, just like the pope, infallible, right? And uh, uh, Isaiah, from the earliest moment of Jewish history, Jews scorn that idea. When they finally say, put a king over us, you remember, uh, uh, and, Sa and, and, and Samuel says, do you know what a king's going to do to you? Do you know? We want to be like the other nations. This is in the book of Samuel. Do you know what a king's going to do to you? And lists the whole list, right? We do not, even though King David gains a legendary status, the Jewish tradition does not think kings are a great idea. Um, I love that quote. Once you thought in your heart, I will climb to the sky. Higher than the stars of God, I will set my throne. I will, and uh, instead you are brought down to the bottom of the pit. <laughs> Those who behold you stare and say, is this the man who shook the earth, who made realms, tr realms tremble? Uh, uh, and it goes on. Um, and it's like, it's like Saddam Hussein being pulled out of um, that, uh, that pit he was hiding in. Or, or uh, um, what's his name in Libya? Gaddafi, mm -hmm. uh, hiding in a culvert under the highway. <laughs> How the mighty have fallen, right? It's, it's happened since, you know, I, I gave a, uh, last Friday, I was asked to do a talk at Bard College um, in their Lifelong Learning Institute. That's like our life spring that meets here. And they asked me to do this every year. They asked different clergy to come. They do a religion series. And this year, this, the theme was hope and optimism in Judaism in each tradition. And I said, I guess one of the sources of hope and optimism is as a Jew, is if you line yourself up, if you, if you put yourself in the Jewish story and you consider that the history is mine and the destiny, I'm part of it all, then we have watched empires rise and fall for thousands of years. And we're still here not because we're the empires, but because we're bearing witness to something else. And I said, that's pretty optimistic and hopeful to me that we're still here. Uh, to get it together on Passover and say in every generation some tyrant rose up to destroy us, but hey, we're still here, so let's, as the Jewish holiday joke goes, let's eat. You know? <laughs> um, it's very, uh, so I really enjoyed getting to give that talk because it reminded me of that big sweep of history. Empires will rise and fall, and it, so it was, and so it will be forever and ever. But there's this other thing that human beings do that the Torah is pointing us towards. Yeah. That's why we're here. Yeah. You know, you just brought me to... I still am thinking of this thought of language. Good. And um, when you travel around the world, if you've gone into many synagogues, it's the same Torah. Yeah. And it's, mm -hmm. just, it, it's just so wonderful because you know what's going on. You know, you may not understand, because it's translated not in English, it's whatever language, but it's still Hebrew. And that's one language. 
Isn't that interesting? Interesting. So that's a different, that's like another story about the value of having a shared language. Mm-hmm. Right? Not, but so clearly, as I said, we can take issue. What's wrong with having one language and one set of words? But we've survived with that language. We've also survived with that language. So it cuts both ways, right? It depends how you use it and in what context. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I agree. It's not only the context, but I think it's also like to what objective? What's your objective with it? You know, they were building this building so that they would make sure, you know, their midrash said nobody would leave. That, that's why it was so tall. And the idea is that they weren't building it to house a family. They weren't building it for the homeless. They weren't, bu- what, what was the objectified effort about? To make a name for themselves. Yes, and that's where it becomes like, because we are created in the image of God, which means the biggest thing we're given, the most amazing thing, is that we can create. We create words, we create thought, we create all kinds of things. We create create families, right. (laughs) We create each other in many ways by giving a name and getting to know each other. It's part of creation. Everything we do, Judaism believes, affects our whole environment. And so, you know, to be in the image of God and create, but to what point? It was like the sons of Aaron, where one of the sons, the priest decided, oh, he could go and do what the priest is supposed to do, and he would just go in and get close to God. And it wasn't the way God asks. He overstepped some boundaries. So it's an interesting question to ask, you know? How do we create? What do we create? And mm-hmm. How does it get into the world? And Maybe wrong? our job isn't to make a name for ourselves. That's right. Maybe that our job is to give other people their names, and yeah. then that creates our good name. It's interesting to me also that, so we already talked about how the book of Shemot is the names, right? Right. But also the book of Devarim is the... The, the fifth the, book, the, the, Deuteronomy in Hebrew is called Devarim, which means words. Words. And that the children of Israel are told to build something, right? That, that they're going to build the Mishkan, which mm-hmm. is going to really contain the words, right? It's sort of this container for the words. Beautiful. And those words are not going to be static. You know, what bricks do is they create this immovable structure that's, mm. that's solid nice. in one place. And that the structure that the children of Israel are going to build is going to be a very permeable structure that's going right. to be able to travel with these people that's right Beautiful. that's right it's pastoral it's um it's permeable it's 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 something that you carry with you yeah beautiful thank you <laughs> they're only made of clay yeah that's right um yes please Names are empowering, right? They individuate and they're empowering. But in a way, names are also, they also have the power to do the opposite. So, for example, when you walk through the forest, you know, I, I, I like birds. And I, you know, I want to name every bird. That's right. But there's a whole part of me that doesn't want to name any birds. I just want to take them in fresh every time and not yes. categorize them. Mm-hmm. So there's this. It's a, again, it's this double-edged right. sword. This is the double-edged sword of our consciousness right. of, and of our use of language, right? Our language can become a total trap and become a barrier between us 
and experiencing each other and the world around us because we're too busy naming it and trying to control it with our name. So, yes, this is a dance of, of awareness, you know. And in, in sort of one world and in the other world. Right, right. we want to be able to be... It's sort of this, maybe, maybe this is our... That's uh, why we don't name God. When we, when we stop naming, we experience the divine. Exactly. Right? And um, uh, I think that that's why we have to um, uh, oscillate. You know, we have to find the right rhythm. And that's, again, where the six days of the week and the Sabbath are the primary uh, format for understanding how our consciousness is supposed to be applied in one way, functionally, during the six days of the week, and then on the Sabbath to stop naming. That's right. God stops. We stop. What does God do? God yinafash. God reflects and is refreshed. So to encounter God, that's why we don't name God. Because that consciousness is what reminds us of the connection of everything. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and it's not one or the other. Like that is the, that is the conundrum and the challenge of the consciousness and language we've been given. Let's do one more thing that's in line with this and that Judy Klitzner also pointed out really well. Go back to page 70. So at the end of the story, that is why it was called Babel. And interesting because Bab El as I see in the note here, I just realized this. Bob is the Semitic word for gate. And El is God. So Babel means probably, in its origins, the gate, the gates of God, right? And uh, for them to say, yeah, well, really it means Bilbul, Babel, you know, nonsense. <coughs> and that's what they have to say about Babylonian imperial grandeur. Quite the comment, huh? Um, and then it says, then it says, and this is the line of Shem. So now, this is about, this is the name of names. And it, it lists the, um, it, it lists the generations down to, in verse 27, this is the chronicle of Terach. Terach begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And we're into the story of Abraham. Oh, before I forget, uh, I'm sorry to, to be a little disjointed here, but I want to point out to you, would you just put your finger there and go back to page 67? This is chapter 10. And we're hearing about the sons of Ham, of Ham, one of the Noah's sons. And it says Ham's sons were Ham begot Cush in verse 6 and 7, and then in verse 8 on page 67, and Cush begot Nimrod. He was first among the earth's heroes. He was a mighty hunter before the eternal, for which reason it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the eternal. Vetehi reshit mamlachto, his choice domains, or the beginning of his mamlachto, his kingdom, the beginning of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, 
and Akkad, all of them in the land of Shinar. Yes, where are the people gathering now in the story? They're in the land of Shinar. And they say, let's create a city, Babylon. So Nimrod is the um, uh, progenitor of all this. What does Nimrod mean in Hebrew? Let us rebel. Uh Nimrod is to rebel. When Moses says to the children of Israel, he wants to... um, he wants to, uh, um, and he strikes the rock. He says, listen, you rebels. So Nimrod means, let us rebel. So the Midrash, even though none of this is explicit in the story, make Nimrod the king of Babylon, who is leading this whole effort of rebellion against God, as it were, of the... And so I'm mentioning that to you because Abraham who is now born, lives in that region, right? And all it says about Abraham in the Torah, you're going to have to turn ahead to chapter 12, which is on page 91, which keep in mind, everyone, this is important. The way this book is constructed Everything between page 71 and 91 is commentaries. But this is the end of chapter 11, and this is the beginning of chapter 12. Do you follow what I'm saying, even though they're 20 pages apart? So just imagine them being... Chapter 11 ends on page 71, where we were just reading about the Tower of Babel, and then Shem and the generations to Abraham. And then there are 20 pages of commentaries, and then chapter 12 begins. My only point is, you have to treat them as contiguous, right? They're, despite the 20 pages of commentaries. Okay, that's all I wanted to point out. Like we've been reading a book. Yes. You don't yes. Keep going. Right. And God said to Abram, Lech lecha, go forth from your land, your birthplace, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. And I will make your name great. Oh. oh wow. <laughs> do it this, do it this. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let us make a name for ourselves is different than God saying, go forth and I will make your name great. In other words, that's very different, but it's not an accident that right. that phrase and these phrases are virtually contiguous. I wanted to point that out to you. I think it's beautiful. So what about Abraham is different than the people in Babel? Right? And that is the beautiful question. And Abraham is a descendant of Shem, the na- of name. And God's name is Hashem, the name. It's like, okay, we're having a great time here. That's why the Torah is more like poetry and... Um, Mm, then uh, it's not a newspaper article and it's not an essay in the New Yorker and it's not, it's something else. It's a different kind of literature that makes it so rich. Do you see what I'm saying? And it's not giving us the answers. It's evoking, evoking things from us when we read it really closely. That's Torah study. Again, I just want to say that over and over again. 
It's evocative. Uh, and it's not accidental. Um, but it, so, uh, so God says, so the Midrashim, are any of you familiar with the Midrashim about Abraham? Because the rabbis are fascinated. What, why does Abraham hear the voice of God telling him to leave this place uh, and to go forth? And so they have to tell stories about what Abraham's special capabilities were. And they tell stories, Midrashim, that Abraham questioned everything. Abraham would look at the sun and say, I know they're all worshiping the sun, but the sun goes down, and then the moon comes up, and then the clouds can cover the sun. So shouldn't we worship the clouds? And Abraham is, in the Midrashim, Abraham is constantly questioning the, uh, the, what the origin of all, everything is and concludes that there must be a primer, a prime cause beyond all physical reality, beyond all names. And because of that, Abraham is able to hear the call to go on a spiritual journey. Right? And lech lecha, as our tradition teaches, means both go forth and go to yourself. There's something, God senses something about Abraham that Abraham is, is capable of perceiving this and of therefore being the first Ivri, the first Hebrew. Ivri is a very interesting word because la'avor means to cross over, to cross, to transgress, to an avera in Hebrew, an avera is a transgression, but la'avor is also simply to pass across, to pass, to cross over. Um, it's something about being a boundary crosser. Something about the word Hebrew, which is used selectively, is being an outsider. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. Yes? It's interesting, of course, everybody knows this, that he ultimately changes his name. God changes Abraham's right. name. God right, changes right. his name. Right. And adds the hey. That's right. So God, Abraham and Sarai, his wife, are originally Avram and Sarai, and eventually... They become Avraham and Sarah. They both get a He, the letter He in their name, which is the name of God. You know, Yod He Vav He. Somehow they start to embody the divine qualities that God was hoping to imbue humanity with when God says, let's make them in our image. What is that about Abraham and Sarah that, uh, that gives them this divine imprint in their name? It's a beautiful question, isn't it? Uh, in the Midrashim, Abraham and Nimrod face off all the time. These fabulous stories, you should read them. Uh, and Nimrod is so angry with Abraham for defying Nimrod's rule that he decides to throw Abraham into a fiery furnace. Anybody grow up with these uh, stories? I did, because I went to Jewish day school. Um, and, and, uh, and Abraham gets thrown into the furnace, but God protects him from the fire and comes out whole again. Uh, nothing Nimrod can do can, get, can kill Abraham. It's a whole series of stories. And Abraham is defying Nimrod's idea of himself, that he is God. And this becomes, a, again, a pres presages 
what's going to happen in Egypt to Pharaoh. So it's almost like this is the trial run of the story. Um, uh, in that, that is going to, you know, become what we read about in the book of Exodus. Uh, and so I just going to repeat. The people in Babel say, let us make a name for ourselves. But Abraham somehow merits God saying, I will bless you and make your name great. But Abraham is not trying to make Abraham's name great. Abraham is seeking. So, so isn't it implicit then that all of us could do that? That's the idea. Right. So it's implicit that if we stop trying to do it ourselves and we break the boundaries and we listen better, that we can find what Abraham found. Back to the paradox that Rob was saying. If we can enter that Sabbath consciousness Uh, of of beginner's mind, of let me listen, let me reflect, let me absorb the world, that we will then hear and receive the, in the call that we are yearning for mm-hmm. from the universe. You know, um, yes, that's the idea. And therefore, Abraham is the first Jew. <clears throat> and I, interestingly enough, you know, some four billion people around the world consider Abraham to be their spiritual father because it's true of Islam and it's true of Christianity as well. This would be a great conversation, wouldn't it? Uh, uh, what does Abraham represent? You know, this willingness to uh, go to a place he doesn't know, to a place that God will show him. And right. not name everything. Like That's right. Is, is that trusting yeah. and humility. Yeah. Right. right. Trusting the call and rather than... So that's why the people in Babel, they do not trust. That's why... As Pauline was saying, that's why the, the stories about them are that they want to collect themselves all in one spot. They don't want to be scattered all over the earth. Remember, Abraham is going to be scattered. He's going to be sent off on his call. They don't want to hear that call. They want to consolidate themselves in one place, build a tower to heaven so they can take control over their fate. An understandable human impulse that uh, the Torah is telling us is not the key to a spiritual uh, um, to, to our spiritual destiny. It's a hindrance, actually. Mm-hmm. Yes? Question. So, so Abraham was going to go to the land of Canaan. Canaan is one of Noah's sons, right? This gets into a whole other narrative story. Um, so yeah. it's a land that would say he came from the land of Shem, and so he would not have known the land of Canaan, let's say. He was a stranger there. So where actually is the land of Shem? So it's, oh, it's the land of Shem is called Ur, Ur of the Kashtim, it's in, it's on the Euphrates, it's in the Fertile Crescent, in the land of what became later Babylonia, but it was now Sumeria and Acadia. It's the Fertile Crescent, that's where, and Abraham then, remember those maps where it's green across the Fertile Crescent? He wanders through Syria and down into the land of Canaan. So that's kind of where that, so that's his origin, is that? Is that like the map on 56? The map what? Yes, I'm sure that's the map on page 56. So this land of um, Sephara, the eastern mountain, that's, I'm just reading the land of Shem. Oh, yeah. The dwelling uh, was near Masha. Masha. I believe 
some of those places have been identified. But I don't know. Um, all I know is this general arc, back and forth, from the land of the giant city to the land of the pastoral Canaanites. Because, um, you know, Abraham sends Eliezer back to get a wife for uh, um, uh, Isaac, and then Isaac sent, Jacob runs off back to where he meets Rachel and Leah. Um, and but then my question is, so why didn't God just give Shem that land to begin with? Why, why go through all this trouble? You know, so the land was separated out between the three sons of Noah. It, was just, it could have worked out so differently. Just I give mean, Shem that land to begin with and call it a day. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the question. It would not be a journey. Who wants an answer without a journey? Well, well, we're ending in just a few yeah. seconds. The, the, and the answer to that story is, God, what were you thinking? Right. <laughs> <laughs> what would we be sitting around this table doing? Uh, yes, one more, so many one more yes. comment from one more comment from Sarah, and then it's time to quit. So what I'm seeing, the, the earth had the same language and the same words, and we've gone through to Abraham being freed right. to go on a spiritual journey. Right. Right. And that's the tradition. That's what we're doing. It's our tradition is multivocal intentionally. And it's about questions and convert conversation and answers. And yes, the Jewish tradition is is determinately not monolithic or totalitarian in how we approach this. That's absolutely right. It's it's almost an it's fundamentalism is an in a way an aberration of the Jewish approach to holy text. Yeah. What a great statement. Exactly. <laughs> That's why I say, in truth, Jews, except some a leader like <clears throat> Muhammad or Jesus. What? Like Muhammad or Jesus. No, I was just speaking internally to, yeah. to Jewish, yeah. the Jewish approach. Right, but I was thinking if came along a leader who claimed that they were the son of God or it's always been challenged by Jews. It's like it's one of the one of the. Yeah, but it's it's not that's why it's complicated. But uh, but it's but that's on the right track. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.